Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations in executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and today I am joined by three protective security professionals, Trinity Davis, Chris Sargent, and Christian Winfield. Trinity Davis is a trusted global security leader currently working as a senior VP of Strategic Engagement at 360 Privacy and also as an advisor at Delta Fuego. Previous to his current roles, Trinity served as a director of protective services at the online trading platform Robinhood. He also managed protective operations for a private family office out of Palo Alto, California. And next up with them is Chris Sargent, who also works under the 360 Privacy umbrella as an executive services consultant. Now, prior to his current role, Chris served in the U.S. Army as a cryptologic linguist and a member of the Special Operations Team Alpha, a signals intelligence electronic warfare element of the U.S. Army Special Forces. In addition to his military service, Chris also served as an intel analyst with the U.S. Department of Justice before coming on with 360 Privacy. Now, last but not least, we've also got Christian Wingfield in the stack, better known as CW. He also works at 360 Privacy as a cyber threat intelligence team lead. Now, previous to his time at 360 Privacy, Chris also served in the U.S. Army as a Special Operations Signal Intelligence Sergeant with 5th Special Forces Group. Now, gentlemen, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to meet with me after working through some uh, some challenging scheduling issues. Um, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be talking digital executive protection today as somebody who's worked government cybersecurity policy and later spent time in uh, a cybersecurity startup. Um, this is an important topic, and today's protectors need to become familiar with it if they aren't already, um, as I'm sure we'll discuss later. Uh, the digital threats to clients are not going away anytime soon. But before we take a dip into the deep end of the pool, I'd like to take a moment to allow each of you to patch up any significant gaps in your background, if you'd like, before we get moving along on today's topic. Ron, I think you actually captured it well, uh, my friend. I'm happy to to jump right in. Wonderful, guys. Um, let's just start here. Uh, most people... You know, either grew up uh, in and around the cyber world, but as it relates to digital protection, um, what is digital protection, and how do you protect high-profile clients from digital risk? And uh, furthermore, let's tap into what is digital risk today, and what are you guys seeing out there? Well, uh, so Ron, starting off, you know, to make a really long story short, what we're trying to do with uh, digital executive protection is add to the concentric layers of security uh, around an already existing uh, executive security program. So what I like to try to say is there's a digital bear or a bad actor chasing us all. The goal in this space is really to ensure that our clients are not the slowest in the chase, if you will. So we're going soft target, the hard target, um, or you know, through the identification process, you know, threat assessment, et cetera. It's just that red team to blue team. So identifying the their the current risks, the ongoing um, you know, changes in the digital environment. And unfortunately, it is ever-changing. Uh, so once those those gaps are identified, is we're actually uh plugging those holes, if you will. That's very cool. And uh I'm gonna throw a couple words out at you guys. And and these are some things that maybe are synonymous to a non-digital landscape as well. But as it relates to kind of clients overall risk profile, but also then specifically to their digital risk profile, what is something like an account takeover or reputational harm or financial impact, malware, spyware, and corporate espionage mean to you guys specifically in the area of executive protection that you guys sit? So I know that both Chris's are going to have a lot to say on this. I'll start off real quick by one of the major tenants that I was protecting clients from, you know, over the last two decades uh, was reputational harm, right? So one of the things, especially in the corporate environment, is if you have an executive, let's say a founder, a CEO, a CFO, et cetera, 
their name is the brand of that organization. So ensuring that not only are we utilizing gates, guards, and guns to protect them, but we're also, you know, putting in protective measures in the digital space to ensure that, you know, the pathways of, of exploitation are closed to the extent in which we can actually action. Um, because if someone is uh, smeared or, um, you know, some sort of reputational attack is launched against them on a digital media platform that translates to real dollars. And while it doesn't directly relate to executives in this case, it does actually lead directly to uh, an executive leadership teams taking a specific stance on, you know, one side or the other. If you think about uh, anything that's happened recently in the adult beverage space or retail space where an organization has taken a stance on a social issue, Regardless of which side you you know you you find yourselves, um, you saw a significant market uh, loss to the tune of you know tens of billions of dollars. So that that's really what we when we're trying to prevent reputational harm, not at an organizational level, but at the executive level, ensuring that someone can't specifically target them or attach them to something in the space that leads to uh, you know loss of, uh, you know, financial risk, loss of confidence uh, from the, the executive board, loss of confidence, um, you know, from shareholders leading to, leading to real, you know, business continuity issues. Uh, in regards to a lot of the other things with account takeovers, I'm certainly going to pitch this over to both Chris's. Both of them are, are really dialed in in the tech space, and I'd love to let them expand on those those things specifically. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. This is C-Dub. Um... Great question, Ron. I think, you know, a lot of these go hand in hand. It used to be, you know, gun, guns and guards, and that was what we needed. And now you need guns, guards, and somebody focusing on, you know, what is the ultimate vulnerabilities that people may have or those exploitable pathways that somebody may have in their digital lives. So when you talk about account takeover, you're talking about reputational harm. Think about how many people make money from their social media platform, whether that's, you know, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, et cetera, Snapchat even. You know, if somebody got a hold of these accounts and that's a way that you're making money, how could they affect your reputational harm in the industry, which could then again lead to a financial impact? When we start talking about really your digital risk and how readily accessible so much personally identifiable information is about a principal online, that's when we can start talking about really nerdy things that Chris Argent and I like to talk about, like SIM swapping and account hacking and hijacking and things of that nature. Because if somebody could get a hold of your phone number, they could do a SIM swap, and then all of a sudden they have access to everything. Maybe you had multi-factor authentication set up, but it was set up through your phone number, or there was a breach, and now somebody knows your password to your backup account, and now they can hijack your backup account and get into your primary account. So as we go through, you know, the digital risk profile in 2023 is just as or more important than the physical risk profile, and they work hand in hand as part of a truly uh, collaborative executive and digital executive protection program. And that was an awesome uh, overlay. Chris, do you have anything to uh, to add on? I don't think there's a whole lot I can add to that. Uh, that was hasn't already been said, but um, you know, we like to be that value add. Like they were saying, you have you know your physical protection of these principles, and so what we like to do is we like to go in there and introduce the idea of the digital footprint, right? And make those security teams aware that the threat isn't always physical. And if it is physical, nine times out of 10, it starts in the digital space through, like Chris said, through gathering that PII from online platforms, data brokers, things like that. Uh, so we like to go in there and basically protect, detect, and respond. You know, we do a lot of that through education. Um, and just like I said, try to be a value add to that team. No, that's, that's an important aspect, uh, which is why we're talking about it here. And, uh, so when you have, you know, a client, obviously somebody who's a who's working in the tech space, who's familiar with those terms, PII and some of these other kind of niche terms, um, how do you educate clients that maybe aren't so digitally um, skilled or don't have a digital background? How do you encourage them to add this kind of layer of protection to their existing, you know, security programs? So I, I really want Chris to Chris Sargent to dive in on this one a little bit more, but from a very high level overview. One of the things that we really take seriously is ensuring that we're being mindful of, of the executive's time or the family's time, right? We understand that they have far more pressing issues uh, going on in their lives. So t 
typically that's done through a discovery call, right? We want to reach out to either them or the executive assistant, the personal assistant, uh, director of security, whoever it is on the front end of, of us actually doing the educational uh, presentation to the family and identify what devices they're using, what applications, um, uh, whether it's you know social media, um, business development apps, uh, business directed app, whatever applications, so that when we come to the house, we're delivering a focused message that has been specially uh, designed around uh, their needs. It, and, and I'll give you a prime example. So we're three instances uh, over the course of the, the, the last quarter where we've delivered an in-home assessment to, or not an assessment, but education piece to a private wealth uh, manager who's who's in their late 60s that that understands technology probably at the most basic level, um, but understands enough in the space where they need you know protections in place. So that would be Chris's team coming in and develop, you know really delivering a much different message than a uh, Fortune 50 CTO that they already clearly understand the technology in the space, but they may not understand, um, you know, the, the, the trade craft or the tips and tricks to dial in your device, especially when you're, you know, traveling to reduce that exploitation. And then you've got, you know, the message that's somewhere in the middle where maybe it's the child of, uh, of an executive um, who is 15 or 16 years old, really active in social media, understands technology because they were born into it, but maybe not understanding the implications of, or, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the outcomes of, uh, of what you actually input into that social media platform. So checking into, you know, real life locations, sharing um, or checking in on vacation, being mindful of, you know, what's being uh, posted in the background of selfies, because uh, I can do a reverse Google image search and locate your, your, your uh, location just as easily as you just posting uh a, a, uh, an address. And that goes for interior of homes. So let's think about, you know, Airbnbs, for instance, you're traveling on vacation, you have a really popular Airbnb that you're staying at, that image is in the background. Uh, I can reverse Google image search, go through like TripAdvisor where other pictures or whatnot have been, uh, have been posted of that location and narrow down or focus into an exact, uh, an exact address. So uh, when we're delivering those messages, it's it's always going to be focused to that executive, to that audience, to that audience, uh, you know, support structure, et cetera, based on the information we've collected on the front end. Yeah, to add to that, Trinity, um, just to summarize, so that's kind of my niche at 360 is I go into the client's home, I do a network assessment, I configure their devices, install software, turn on off firewalls, things like that. Uh, but the most vulnerable element of this whole experience is the human element. So like you said earlier, the education piece, I feel like that's most important because you can install all the technical programs, uh, firewalls on people's devices. But if the, you know, if they click on a phishing link, they get socially engineered, then it's a moot point. And so even when you have like these sophisticated nation state actors that go after um, some of these higher level organizations, just that we've seen in this past year, um, it's yeah, it's it's sophisticated, it's nation state, but the hook is always the same. It uh, it didn't, it wasn't anything special. The old tricks work. It was a phishing email that uh, you know an employee clicked on. It was the call from IT that really wasn't the IT guy that needed the login credentials for that account, and so. The education piece is very, very important, and that's what we I mainly focus on when I go to a client's home. And I'll add this one last thing in is the is their inner circle. So their family members, especially on that education piece, I gather their EAs, their family members, all these people into the room together because back when I was targeting um, uh, terrorist organizations or individuals, uh, usually that person knows that especially the U.S. government is after them. And so they're a pretty hard target. You know, they're pretty well prepared, but their spouses or their children may not be. And so if if their devices are weak, if their education is weak, then I can get to them to get to the principal. Um, so yes, education to me, of most importance. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. You brought up not just the target itself, but kind of the potentially weak links in the chain, which is that immediate surrounding concentric ring of people um, and further expanding out. And uh, much like when you're targeting terrorist organizations um, or, you know, law enforcement agents do the same thing uh, when they're targeting uh, a person of interest is to work around that that person and see who's surrounding them and who's going to be able to give them good information. Um, how do you guys strike that balance? Um, some of the clients today really thrive in the digital space. That's where a lot of their uh, work comes from. That's where their notoriety comes from. That's kind of how they they make their living. How do you work with clients in this kind of 21st century digital landscape um, and strike that balance with them so they can both thrive online without becoming a victim of kind of their own accord? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's a question we face with every client because no client is the same. And I think that's what separates us is there's this isn't a cookie cutter program. It's not we don't hand the, you know, square piece to the square hole every time. It's always changing. Uh, we know that modern problems require modern solutions, right? So, yeah, it, it, you're exactly correct. We have clients that are influencers on Instagram, and then we have clients that want to, you know, go off in the woods and never touch anything digitally again. We can get you there either way. Uh, but I think the question was more geared towards the person who wants that presence online, right? Um, and what we do is we just, we give multiple suggestions, account hardening, whether that be Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, device hardening, and that education piece like I was talking about earlier. And we try to throw up, say, five or six layers in that security stack. And as long as they're doing, say, half of them, then they're going to be okay. They're going to be a harder target than the, you know, the guy next door, because nobody really has all their security layers up all the time. And one of our coworkers says you'd end up being a crazy person if you did. And he's right. So, you know, we just try to get in there, get those layers added in, and then hope that, you know, a majority of them are sticking most of the time. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, protective security practitioners kind of by and large um, either don't have any touch points to kind of the digital threat landscape themselves. Obviously that's why you guys are are doing what you're doing, but what do these individuals who maybe day to day don't have a responsibility directly, you know, they're either working some other form of executive protection, but they're working with a client and what do they need to understand about today's digital threat landscape? What are things that they can be doing by accident that may have an impact on their client or themselves? And one way or another may lead back to some of these issues that we talked about earlier about account takeovers or reputational harm or financial impact back on their client or even themselves and, and their own company? Ron, that's, that's a fantastic question and one that we have really been pressing hard uh, as of late uh, into the industry. And you know, to expand on what Chris talked about earlier in terms of uh, expanding to you know the spouse, the children, the EAs, the PAs, uh, that includes the, the security practitioner as well. Um, so the reason I say that is because bad actors often know that that uh, there's a ton of assets and advisors focused on the principal themselves. Um, however, if I can just pivot off of that individual and target someone in their inner circle that I know is technically, uh, you know, not proficient um, in in the space. They don't have the the programs or the advisors, you know, really giving them the the tools in order to safe safeguard their own devices. And they're with them 24 hours a day, almost seven days a week. That would be, you know, us security practitioners. Um, so I'm going to focus my efforts on those individuals. And that's something that, that we're really trying to change the industry from within and make individuals, uh, you know, individual practitioners, you know, cove pro teams, overt teams, family teams, executive teams, whatever it is, understand that that there are things that that can be done to really mitigate the risk that the 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 signals risk that they bring into their lives. So Chris has worked really hard over the last six months to develop a program um, that that we're actually going to be bringing in and kind of highlighting at IPSB this year, um, focused at 
hardening uh, skills and education around protectors. Chris, do you, do you want to take a little bit of time to kind of focus in on what you're trying to do in that space uh, through digital mitigation strategies? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try to touch on that lightly. Um, so what we want to do is integrate with the physical protection teams. And so a physical protection team, obviously, defending against that physical threat, um, you know, it's their job to get that client there safely while they're in transit. You know, they may be trying to pick up, you know, surveillance if there is surveillance or a tail or somebody trying to follow them. Um, but what we want to focus on is in this day and age, you might be up against someone who is targeting your principal or your organization who is using the technical space to do that. So what we want to do is go in there and, and train these protectors to use their physical knowledge and this new digital knowledge hand in hand to be the most secure team that they can be. Uh, and we can unpack some more of that here along with these following questions, but um, you know, it's just things that would keep them from being um, say uh, tracked and correlated digitally. Um, it could be a digital trade craft, things like that. Um, Trinity, you uh, are you happy with that response? Yeah. So I I know that you don't want to get too much into it because you want to give up, uh, you know, a little bit of trade craft. But we're, we're, so essentially, we're we're going to go through and develop a communications pace plan, right, Ron? So you know, primary alternate contingent emergency around, um, you know, whether the team's using push to talk, primarily communicating through apps. Um, sat phones, setting up, you know, uh, private networks, you know, those sorts of things. So giving them the the, the tips, tricks, and, and tradecraft to operate in the field, limiting uh, signal uh, exploitation by, you know, really placing a lot of things in, in uh, kind of like, so I, I'll give you a for instance, right? So ensuring that your Wi-Fi and your Bluetooth is always off on your phone, unless you're actively using it. Uh, utilizing a VPN when you're when you you know you're in a public place, um, uh, you know ensuring that there's uh, you know data prophylactics in place uh, for not only yourself, uh, the rest of the security team, um, the executives when you're when you're traveling, um, because uh, you know you know the 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 possibilities of juice checking. So there's a lot of things that are kind of going into you know our bag of tricks around uh, adding those digital tools to the, the protector to, to keep themselves in the executive safe. Again, not trying to give a, a ton of tradecraft away, um, but we can kind of talk about it in a very high level overview uh, as we kind of expand into, you know, the next, you know, 40 or min so minutes of conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, Chris specifically, you know, you've, you've put some really good stuff out in the LinkedIn space. Um, and, and one post in particular stuck out to me and that's right along what we're kind of dancing around here. Cause I don't want to have you guys, you know, release too much information and spoil it for those who are going to be attending the conference later in December, but, uh, specifically to reducing, you know, your, your digital signature, you know, as an, as an EP practitioner and, and somebody serving on a team, you know, you've highlighted it pretty well. And, and I want to give you an opportunity to kind of dig into some of that there, how to, you know, fortify digital offenses, you know, how to work in, you know, sensitive environments and just some kind of simple-ish things to do um, that either people aren't thinking about or they don't know about. And obviously there's going to be another contextual layer that you're going to release um, over at IPSB uh, later in the, you know, kind of end of the year here. Um, don't want to step on that, but for our listeners today, I think it'd be really interesting for them to hear some of what you, uh, what you've used in the past, what you recommend and uh, we'll do that with skirting past uh, what you guys are going to unveil in the near future here. Yeah, absolutely. Like Trinity was saying, um, we try to implement some tactics that um, reduce that digital footprint. So, let's, you know, we talked about digital correlation a second ago. You know, over time, distance, and location, you know, I can figure out your electronic pattern of life where you like to go. One of the ways, and Trinity already mentioned it, is turning off Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connectivity. Um, you know, like we can unpack that a little bit more later, but if you'll just do that, it's a, it greatly reduces your digital footprint and the chance of you being correlated. Um, yeah. And then you can, there's, there's multiple techniques that EP teams can use to eliminate those potential vulnerabilities. 
Um, you can, I think that each team should definitely develop team SOPs as far as they already have them physically, but digital team SOPs, hardening devices through the settings configuration, um, and making them harder to hack and track the device of that person on that team or the whole team. And, you know, we recommend say, if you're using push stock, you know, use encrypted radios, uh, but even better use maybe, you know, an app, a push to talk app over the cell phone. Um, you know, that helps, uh, you know, eliminate that eavesdropping and possibly even direction finding of that signal. Um, use encrypted messaging platforms. Um, that'll help ensure that sensitive information remains confidential. Um, you can also uh, you run VPNs, use uh, data blockers for juice jacking, like Trinity was saying, and just remain aware of those various methods that the adversary may employ to track, correlate your electronic data. The, the one thing that I'll add on to that, Ron, is, is when we talk about messaging apps, not all apps are created equal. We're not in the business of disparaging anyone's you know specific technology, um, but I would do I would encourage listeners to do their own research and really understand what um, uh, zero trust knowledge is when it comes to like end-to-end encryption, uh, ensuring that the encryption begins and ends on the devices. It doesn't begin and end. Uh, on someone else's network or the application's network um, or on their server, I'm sorry. Um, so really dig into that. And then also look at the application's historical use policy and uh, maybe historical data breaches, et cetera, if that makes sense um, without you know really trying to disparage anyone in particular. So I'll throw in something very quick, easy way to... If you don't want to do all that investigative work, you're just like, oh, man, I, I need to start using a better messaging platform. Just remember that if whatever platform, whatever product you're using, if it is free, you are the payment. Your personally identifiable information, your data, your metadata is the payment for that service. So look for something that's either crowdfunded or you have to pay for. That's exactly what I was going to kind of lead you into. And you did it without me even prompting you there. Um, and uh, you're right. Apps are not all created the same. And I think people kind of get into a hang up. Uh, it's in the app store, so it must be okay. And and maybe one of you guys want to want to just unpack even just a little bit more what the implication is for using some of these. I know uh, Chris, you just mentioned you are the product, especially if it's free. But uh, what does that mean? And, and again, what is the implication? And circling back to uh, the client's um, repercussions, uh, and we go back to that very beginning the digital risk, those account takeovers, the reputational harm, financial impact, and so forth. How does it all circle back to that for people who are maybe unfamiliar with uh, with this gap? C-Dub, it's been a while since yeah, you... That's what I was going to say. I think this is a great one for Christian. He sees this stuff on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, so uh, I would love for him to be the one that unpacks that one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people think about this in the space of, you know, email providers, you know, people always want to have their bank account on, you know, say a Gmail account or a Yahoo account, etc. But it's like, are there platforms that are privacy centric? Um, one of those, you know, would be ProtonMail. Uh, ProtonMail, if somebody sends you a tracking pixel within an email, the Proton server will actually open that remotely check for those things, scrape out any type of adware, tracking, et cetera, and then send you that email. Whenever you send an email from ProtonMail, the header is only going to be the server IP in Switzerland. It's not going to be you know, the actual end user IP and things like that. And it's the same with messaging applications. You know, there's a lot of different messaging applications. Some of them have open source code. Some of them do not. I think what's important is to look at what amount of information do you have to provide the platform to even set up the service? And just like Chris was saying, like you don't want to be the commodity because they have to make their money somewhere. You know, Some of these platforms are going to ask for donations. Some of these platforms are working to integrate crypto, et cetera. So you have to start thinking like, you know, for that, like if a crypto company is now going to be in an encrypted service, like that's starting to get into a different realm of, you know, the government's going to need access to this because this is currency at this point. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into um, how you pick a messaging service. Like Trinity said, you want to have end to end encryption. Um, now, back in the day, that used to mean like you had a, a service that wasn't as reliable, um, but 
I will say nowadays with the technology, you can have that same encryption level without uh, losing that user experience. And what I mean by that is, you know, you used to run a VPN and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting half of the speed. You're not able to do the things that you want to do. You know, video messaging, you might as well just leave your camera off because you're blurry, et cetera. Whereas now you have, you know, virtual private network applications that work in the background so well that you don't even realize that they're on, but they're providing you that geolocational comfort zone instead of giving away your geolocational, you know, where you are comfortable, right? Like where you're living. Um, an example I always give is, you know, we've had clients that they've had their IP breached in several different breaches over time. And whenever I pull up the actual geolocation of that server location, it's always near, you know, three of their vacation homes, et cetera. So now you can start looking at the pattern of life there. So uh, I know I'm getting kind of away from the original question, but, you know, always be mindful of how much information you're giving to a platform to sign up and always be mindful of seeing, like, do they have open source code? What are their privacy policies? I know people don't like to read through those, but when you agree to a terms of service, a lot of these applications, you're giving them the right to sell your information, et cetera. So sometimes taking that extra five, 10 minutes to look at the writing uh, in those privacy policy in terms of service can actually save you a lot of heartache down the road. Yeah, no, that's a lot of good information. And, uh, you know, we don't have a sponsor for today's uh, episode, but maybe Proton Mail needs to be the unofficial one. Um, I've been using them since like 2016, um, knew about them when it was still an invitation only service. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it goes way back, uh, still use it today, actually. Trinity, you and I have been probably on both ends communicating off of that. So um, big fan of that product. Uh, but you make a good point. Not all things are built the same. And again, back to you are, if you are the product, there's a reason why. And you're going to be paying one way or another. Um, and there are significant implications if you are in a security context, especially if you are working for a client that is trying to stay away from uh, some of these compromises. So gentlemen, as we kind of round the back end of today's conversation, I'm a big fan uh, as a security consultant of embedding security from the beginning, uh, but rarely does that happen. Um, now, a lot of the people listening today may be in a position, uh, whether they're starting a new protective uh, detail, whether they're starting a new security program, or if their executive is uh, looking to them as an advisor and saying, hey, look, we don't have anything for protecting our digital space right now. What do you recommend? Um, when you're kind of put in that hot seat, um, I'd love to kind of talk about building this digital executive protection program and kind of what you guys recommend as you do such. You know, what are the steps, the processes um, to doing so? What do people need to know about, you know, as it relates to the threat landscape and what information is important to focus on and how you do that through threat assessment and other ways? Um, I'd love to unpack that with you guys today. Yeah, absolutely. So when we do client engagement, it's 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 usually at various different levels. You you know you'll have very complex programs where you know the procurement onboarding process happens, and then there's a ton of stakeholders at the table, which is which is always great because you know when whenever an organization is is approaching this problem um, with a team that you know is really cross functionally supporting across different orgs internally, that means they're taking it seriously. So that typically taught you know we're talking about infosec, uh, security operations, protective intelligence. Um, cyber threat intelligence, uh, and, and then also uh, protective services, the EP team. That's when a plan can get very, uh, very complex, right? And then we, you know, we start talking about, um, you know, conducting a threat landscape assessment, you know, and really the goal there of a threat landscape assessment is to gain insight in the current uh, and emerging uh, risks so that your organization, you know, can implement effective security measures and strategies uh, to really mitigate and manage these threats. So, you know, knowing your industry and the types of risks and threats that you may be uniquely facing is so very important uh, to truly employing, you know, a legitimate, I know a lot of people throw this term around, but a legitimate risk-based approach in designing that program. So that looks much different than, let's say, a private family office that's maybe not as sophisticated, that just identifies that there's a, you know, a real need. We come in and do a digital risk assessment. You know, we come back and say, this is all of you know, the exposures. There's no real sow put in place. There's no 
you know, SLAs, you know, it's not a complex problem. We're just off to the races. So it really depends on, on, you know, what org you're, you're approaching uh, on the, the, to, you know, building that, that program out. So let's just say, for instance, focus on the corporate, you know, model for, for just a second. So the first thing is the threat landscape uh, assessment, you know, does designing uh, or defining those those objectives really uh, it really lays in three different verticals. So you got operational objectives, uh, privacy objectives, and then the cybersecurity objectives. Uh, then you're going to move on and conduct a gap assessment. Uh, then we need to define policies and procedures, uh, assemble the team. Uh, right, who who is going to help direct the program? Who has a say? Uh, who who is Who's going? You know, the escalation. Um, uh, how, how does it, the escalation reporting? How does that actually work? And then te- you know, ongoing testing and improvements for that program as well. Um, and and I'm happy to kind of dive into any kind of facet of uh, or, or any one of those bullets. Um, but I, it's just to point out that one can be really complex, and the other is, hey, here's where you're exposed. This is your this is your enrollment link. And two weeks later, you know, you get your uh, your personalized uh, threat digital threat assessment, uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, you're going to show what the the service has done for you over the the course of the first month. Again, happy to kind of dive into that um, in any different portion or or what different programs look like. Um, where where would you kind of like to start, Ron? Yeah, you know, let's uh let's do this. So. You know, you're talking about a gap assessment. Let's dig into a little bit about what that looks like, what the gap is, um, and 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 what the application is, um, and then we'll roll into some of these other things. Um, but I would love to start there uh, for people just to kind of conceptualize um, where people are and where you want them to be. Yeah, absolutely. So a gap assessment is pretty self-explanatory, right? Let's say, for instance, you're coming in and taking over a team. You want to, it's like building a puzzle, right? You want to take an inventory of everything that's there. So you're looking at all the edge pieces, the pieces that kind of, you know, uh, you know, formulate the interior of, of the puzzle. You kind of putting uh, light pictures together or colors together. So that's that's what you're doing with with the gap analysis at a you know a, a corporate security program is you're identifying what's currently there what what programs what vendors do I have currently supporting the program and what uh, what problem do they mitigate or solve right and then you want to go through and take a close look at where are the gaps right either we're not covering at all. Or what can be uh, improved, and that that can be do, done a couple of different ways. That can be done through improving, uh, you know, vendor relationships, uh, you know, morphing processes, changing how we approach a problem, or that can be bringing in a, an, endi- an entirely new vendor or uh, or processes uh, to to really focus on those issues or the identified gaps in in your security program your ex- specifically your executive security program what that often leads to more uh, uh, more often than not though is is actually a maturation model so you've done your gap analysis you've identified the 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 issues now you need to devise a strategy or a pathway to really identify how do I get from here uh, you know current state, to a really mature and and self-functioning program. There's got to be milestones along the way, right? You you know, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, 25 and 50 meter targets before we get out to that 500 meter target, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I appreciate you because uh, I'm always enthralled about success metrics, right? Um, What it looks like, what it is, and especially in this space, because it's going to be based off of kind of some unique client threat landscapes. Um, so I'd love to hear from you guys kind of based on kind of more of like a 30,000 foot view type of thing, but uh, what are some success metrics that you've used in the past that you've explained and what it's looked like? Because obviously you're getting from that one end to the other after you've identified a gap. And then once you kind of tie it up with a bow, um, you know, for those listening, is it a destination? Is it a journey? Is it a constantly evolving thing as specific to kind of the digital landscape? So it's definitely an evolution. And the reason that I say that, and, and let me just focus on the open web space for a moment, right? 
So there is over 400 data brokerages that are constantly engaging uh, all facets of industry as we live our daily lives. Um, you know, engaging with those companies as I, I can't remember who said it earlier, but every time that we sign up for a gym membership, sign up for, you know, Uber Eats, DoorDash, uh, you know, Lyft, you know, to get a ride, uh, purchase a house car, et cetera. Again, we're giving that, that, that organization through the user agreement to, to actually package and, and sell our data, right? So um, while, why that's important or going back to why it's an ever-changing environment is because these data brokerages understand the immense amount of uh, financial value uh, attached to that data. So they're constantly trying to evolve or change the ways in which you have to opt out or delete your data from those from those uh, the, those platforms. So not only are we constantly having to evolve the way in which we we scrape, identify, and delete, but we're also in a constant flux or or process of identifying. Uh, new threat actors, new data brokers, et cetera, because they're constantly coming on the scene because you know they know the value attached again to that to that data. So it's an ongoing evolution. It, 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 they definitely keep us on our toes. Um, so it's so very hard to to really you know place a, a success uh, matrix to to what we're doing. Um, because it's it's constantly in a state of influx in terms of changing the way in which we a- attack the problem, um, and, and and you know that as well as I do. A well managed program is is very rarely, if ever, tested because they present it as a hard target. So it's really hard to point to a specific metrics um, because it, it it so rarely fails. If that makes sense, and I'm I'm not saying that. You know our platform is is uh, you know transcend failure in, in any you know means, but just trying to use a metaphor that kind of lands it, it, if you will. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and uh, I appreciate you letting me kind of walk you in to that answer because uh, I think the challenge that a lot of people have in this space is the misperception that once you have addressed this on day X, um, that the next day you're not going to have to readdress it, and that is a constant you know, cat and mouse game in the cyber domain of back and forth. And uh, C-Dub sees a lot on the the threat side of what's out there and what's constantly being developed. And uh, I think uh, you guys are kind of done a good job today of explaining that it's something that would be extremely overwhelming for a company or a client to try to manage on their own, in addition to all their normal everyday activities and why it's important to have teams that focus on this uh, directly and consistently and professionally manage this space. Um, And I'm not always, you know, discussion of third party and internal. Um, There's benefits and drawbacks to both, but it is very difficult for internal teams to have the space to manage this as effectively as a third party vendor that can dedicate all those time and resources uh, out there. So that's where I was trying to lead you guys. And I think you kind of walked right into it, expressing kind of the importance of what you guys do every day. Yeah, Ron, uh, this is C-Dub. I'll just kind of touch on some of the targeting things that I see. You know, what you said is absolutely true. It would be overwhelming for um, a principal or an individual or, you know, the lead of the EP team or RST to really identify every single gap. And, And that's really what our team as former digital targeters for the government. That's what we focus on. We focus on looking at those exploitable pathways, but not the ones that are known so much as the ones that could be the new thing. So I'll give you an example and why I brought up ProtonMail earlier. You know, Google, Yahoo, all of these email providers, they want to help you remember your recovery methods. So they're going to show you the last two digits of that number. Some of them show you the first digit and the last two digits of your recovery phone number or an obfuscated recovery email. Well, the thing is phone numbers and emails are inherently vulnerable to to hacking or SIM swapping, et cetera. And what I can do as a threat actor is I can go to Google. I'm focusing just on the visibility of the client or the principal at this time. Google's going to index many of these data brokers. So I'm going to find a number that ends in just say zero, zero. And then when I go find a Gmail that's associated to the principal, it shows that their recovery number ends in zero, zero as well. 
Well, with Google, I can then go say, I forgot my username, type in that phone number. It will ask me for an account name. If that name does not match an account, it will say there is no account found. However, if it does match, then it will ask you if you'd like to send a verification text. That's really scary because the principal on the other end has no idea that this is happening. This isn't sending them a text message or a warning that someone's trying to identify some of the vulnerabilities for those accounts. So I think some of the the metrics of success that I really like to talk about and really what Chris Sargent's team implements is, you know, hey, let's look at your recovery methods. Like maybe we think about moving away from something inherently vulnerable, like an email address or a phone number. Now we're looking at an authentication app such as Google Authenticate, Proton Authenticator app, Authy, any of those authentication apps, something that's going to make you that harder target, which is really the focus of our program. We want to get you off of Google. We don't want your PII to be you know, indexed by Google. So that's something that we're going to focus on. And like you mentioned, it is very overwhelming. But to have a team that maps out you know, really this complicated matrix of data brokers, looking at how they're all connected, how can we better serve our clients, all the way to the dark web space. Trinity was focusing on the open web space. Uh, my team's going to focus more on the dark web space. So if you can play ping pong back and forth between open web data brokers and different dark web data breaches, as everybody that's listening to this podcast knows, there are going to be, your information will end up on the dark web. It doesn't matter if you're a celebrity or you're poor or you're somewhere in between, like your information is out there because you're willingly giving it to insurance companies, to social media platforms, et cetera. That's going to send out your credit card information in some instances, maybe your hash social security number with the last four of your social where some of these data brokers sell the first five. So what I do as a targeter is I just ping pong back and forth because the dark web used to be this spooky space that nobody had access to. And now you have browsers that can just go through Tor and you have access to this. So just as your data broker information has become more readily accessible, so has your access to the dark web to really do that ping pong back and forth. So as we delete from the open web, my program focuses on that more proactive approach to monitoring that dark web information. We're not going to remove that information from the dark web because you reach out to a hacker or somebody that has that information. All of a sudden, it becomes a commodity and they may or may not leak that information, whether you pay them or not. So what we do is we're building these Boolean queries to monitor that information. Now, we're not just going to say, hey your email was leaked in the Luxottica breach or LensCrafters breach or T-Mobile breach because that doesn't really help them. It just says, hey, your email's out there, but it doesn't give them any you know, closure. What we do is we build these queries to say, hey, this is the breach. This is the exact information that was there. And then there's a difference in this world, Ron, between problem identifiers and problem solvers. In our opinion, you know, our company really is both. We want to identify that problem through a red team and then we want to implement the, the mitigation solutions through that blue team and through Chris Sargent's team in the in-home. Hey, Ron, real quick, there's something that Chris said that I really want him to kind of, it's a good nugget for everyone to think about that I want him to kind of uh, uh, touch on a little bit more, if that's okay. Please go right ahead. Uh, so, CW, the one thing that you mentioned um, is two-factor authentication and utilizing an external application. Can you explain real quick why, not mentioning any names or specific breaches, but can you explain real quick why it's good to get your two-factor off of SMS texting to your current phone? Yeah, absolutely. So, Ron, this is something we see, and there have been breaches recently that were um, caused by SIM swapping. And again, it's something that people aren't familiar with. And like you said earlier, Ron, it's overwhelming because people hear SIM swapping and they don't really understand. And this is something we talked about at the ATAP conference in Bozeman is that there's almost this inverse relationship in that you have all of these younger people and people that aren't digital natives that have access to all of these devices and their education is going down and their vulnerabilities are going up just because they utilize a device. They don't understand phishing and malware and spyware, et cetera. And so there was a push for a long time in the industry to implement multi-factor authentication, which arguably any multi-factor authentication is better than no multi-factor authentication. However, when you start looking at uh, how easily accessible your PII is just through a simple Google search, 
you start seeing like in 2022, there was $86 million lost to SIM swapping attacks. And all that takes is one person looking at your social media. Maybe it's not private, figuring out who your family is, who your friends are. Now they start looking at where you went to high school. They start identifying security questions that could be involved in, you know, this SIM swapping attack. They go to your data broker. They're looking at all your previous addresses. What was your childhood street? What was your childhood phone number, et cetera? And they're gathering all this information. Then they're calling somebody from, you know, one of these providers, Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T. And they're saying, hey, I've lost my device. You know, they go through the security questions. All of a sudden, they just give you know, a new device number, they they port that number out to that device. And now they have access to everything that would have been coming to your phone number. So we've had individuals come to us after a SIM swap attack, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, because they didn't know they, they didn't have access. They had their phone, but they didn't realize that their text messages were going somewhere else. They didn't realize that somebody had gotten into their email account. And now we're sending emails to, you know, their CPA or their, their CFO, et cetera. And so all of a sudden people are losing thousands of dollars and all this money is getting wired to, you know, uh, a fraudulent line, et cetera. And they just had no idea about the process. So one thing I want to really stress here is that, yes, any form of multi-factor authentication is better than no multi-factor authentication. But in my opinion, and it's shown through the data, your email address is very vulnerable. Now, Proton is a separate issue, but the majority of email providers are extremely vulnerable because those passwords are going to be available through breaches, et cetera. Your phone number, because of the amount of data that's easily found through Google, that leads to data brokers. And some of these data brokers are free. You don't have to pay $20 for all these data brokers. Some of them are very cheap, free. You just click on the link. You're going to see who are, their, who are their relatives? Where do they live? What are their email addresses? What are their phone numbers, et cetera? So moving away from something that is so inherently vulnerable to something like an authenticator app is absolutely a metric of success, like we talked about earlier, where you have to have a few of those within a program. But when I do an initial red team or threatened vulnerability assessment, there are things quickly that people can change. And Chris Sargent's team really does a good job of identifying those privacy settings and social media platforms, identifying, hey, can your LinkedIn be found through email address on Google, et cetera, and really just dialing in on that so that privacy is always at the forefront of the principal's mind without them having to understand everything that we've done for them. And a big thing I also want to stress is that we're not trying to take people off of social media. Like We're not trying to change their life. We want them to live their life how they want to. So what we need to do is identify things that can be running in the background or settings that we can change that they don't notice that can make their life feel like we haven't changed anything, but have made them a harder target in the process. So a really easy way to say it, Ron, is we, we don't want to be the fun police and tell them they can't do something, right? We want to help them navigate the life that they choose to live because our processes, our program, our platform is there protecting him in the background. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think uh, C-Dub, especially what you just explained, is is increasingly important because I think a lot of these individuals will be wrapped into whether it's the corporate side or a client as the big push for multi-factor identification. It, it's huge right now. And it's pretty much everybody's hopped on board, but it's how you're doing that, right? And you talked about these authenticator apps. I've got at least two on my phone uh, here for different applications and requirements. But uh, we look at piggybacking off what you're talking about. Uh, Dark Owl was a company that I used to be partnered with back in my cybersecurity days. And they used to have a report annually and they ranked companies based on their level of exposure on the dark web. And uh, sometimes it was shocking to see which companies were on there, major companies, and each of these have CEOs and protection teams that circle right back to the risk and the solution-based thinking that you guys really drive into the problem. Um, and just for our listeners, I don't think I've ever uh, talked about any other podcasts on this podcast, but uh, to kind of conceptualize, if you're listening to CW talk about some of these threats and areas that people grab this information, uh, there is a uh, 
a podcast I listen to every once in a while called Dark Net Diaries. And it does a really good job talking about some of the vulnerabilities that are out there and kind of exactly what you guys work so hard every day to prevent and protect your clients that you work for. And uh, it's just, if you're listening, going, all right, this is interesting, but where can I dig in and listen to a little bit more that's out there? That's a good place to just uh, listen to kind of the threats that are out in that space and how they've been exploited or how that individual who runs that podcast has exploited them in the past. Um, but you guys, to to wrap this, um, and before we do, uh, I always find this in, this question interesting, and I think it'll be especially interesting for who we have on today. But uh, what drives each and one each each of you individually? What drives you guys to work in this space? Obviously, there's a lot of niches throughout executive protection, and this is one that uh, is becoming kind of increasingly elevated. But what is that personal drive that gets you guys behind the computers and in front of clients to protect their assets and themselves? I'll field that one first, Ron. Um, I think for me, it's just the humanity of the piece. I think a lot of people forget that a lot of people in this, you know, ultra high net worth space and celebrities, you know, they have such a stigma and they're, they're labeled as like a, a stuck up individual or they have a lot of money. So they, they don't care about humanity. And, you know, and majority of cases and for speaking from personal experience, like that's absolutely not the case. A lot of these celebrities and ultra high net worth people have worked extremely hard. They have become successful and that's part of their story. And unfortunately they get labeled with a lot of hate and negative, um, ideas and pictures of who they are. And what I really love about working here coming from the government space is just trying to give them a normal life or as normal as possible, Uh, being able to find these, you know, exploitable pathways that we can help plug those holes so that they can just continue to live as normal a life as possible. Obviously, Trinity came from more of the, the physical space and really working with him and understanding how an executive protection and a residential security team operate really has helped, you know, hone my analysis and how I target people, because now I'm starting to see this is how an EP team would look at this. This is how an RST would look at this. And that way I can actually speak more of their language, if that makes sense. So personally, it's just adding more humanity to the piece. And it makes me feel good to know that I can help uh, people live a little bit more of a normal life. It's a great answer. Yeah, I'll expound on that a little bit. Um, Like Chris said, the human part of this is always, you know, the most rewarding. Uh, For example, before I got into the private sector, um, after I kind of slowed down on, say, the targeting process and, you know, became a team sergeant and started focusing more on, you know, the guys and the mission, uh, some friends of mine, teammates of mine, we wrote a, a class and it was a digital protection class and we would teach it to our officers um, high-ranking officers, diplomats, whoever to travel overseas uh, to keep this from happening to them. You know, what we saw out there with the, the techniques that we would use, we 180 that, taught it to our guys, and then knew that they were going off to that foreign country uh, a little safer. And that was really rewarding. And so when I got the opportunity to work at 360 and do this, you know, a hundredfold for, you know, the private sector, you know, I was, I was really excited about it. It's, uh, it's never boring. It's a problem that's ever changing. There's nothing that we figure out in cybersecurity and then go, all right, we got it. We're done, right? No, there's new problems every day. So I enjoy figuring out those new problems, having to figure out every day how to protect our clients. Um, and so that's really enjoyable. And I, and I, I, I think I'll stick with this career path for, until I retire. That's awesome. Uh, for me, so I'm the old guy in the room, right? I've, I've been in the industry for almost two decades. Uh, and I think... Ron, since you've been in the protection game for for uh, you know several years now, I think that you, you'll maybe align with this, right? Anybody that's in this industry for more than five to seven years is a special person. They've been called to do this, right? They have a passion for the industry for for um, you know not only protecting principal, principal families, executives, entertainers, whatever it is. But also that team environment of being surrounded by like-minded individuals that are focused on the common good, the humanity. Um, you know, everyone deserves some level of protection. And I think specifically the folks that we found ourselves focused at protecting, um, it, for me anyway, over the last uh, 20 years, you know, just feels like, again, like I've been called to do it. Um, 
in terms of why I've landed on now just over the last, you know, 16 ish months in the digital space is because really over the course of the last six to eight years, I've identified that the vast majority of the physical risks that I was trying to mitigate for began in the digital space. So bringing in this platform, this program, this team to help solve that issue for me has really opened my mind, educated me to the issues that are unfortunately constantly um, evolving. Uh, So I think really a twofold answer for the digital perspective uh, on executive protection would be number one, I love puzzles. I love figuring things out. Um, But number two, it's because of the, you know, my, my passion for the industry is I want to help bring organizations into the future. I want to help them get away from the model of gates, guards, and guns solve all problems because that's not, that's not the case. Those three things definitely have their place in the industry. But when we start talking about, uh, surveillance, for instance, surveillance doesn't begin in the physical space anymore. If you can, as a bad actor, if I can re- reduce my my risk of being caught in the early stages of developing pattern of life uh, by doing all of that stuff in, in the digital space, I've already made a huge advance towards actually winning the fight. Uh, so I, I really want to bring programs into the present, into the future, um, giving them the tools giving them the knowledge base to to implement these solutions and protecting the families they've been charged with. I think that's awesome. And uh, gentlemen, I would be a little remiss with two of you coming from, you know, U.S. military work. Um, We have talked about it often on this program, the transition from government to private sector. And I've got two guys in this space who have worked uh, in the government sector that I talk to a lot of people who work cybersecurity in a government space and uh, this executive protection layer of digital protection isn't something that I think is often talked about. And a lot of guys I know that then go do the guards, gates and guns and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, you guys are s- still within a niche that I think uh, as we have people leaving with their 20 years of service, 25, 30, et cetera, and looking for that private s- uh, sector space, um, I'd love to have you guys just briefly uh, mention kind of a little bit of that transition process for those who uh, may be approaching those gates right now. Yeah, I'll start, Ron. So um, I transitioned about a year ago. Um, and, you know, there are ups and downs, but I think the biggest thing is that I feel like when you're transitioning, you're really losing an identity. And people that are still in don't really understand how to support you while you're getting out. And some of the companies or people that you go to work for don't understand how to support you and the identity that you previously had. So I think what happens is there's this echo chamber of my skills are not going to transition well. Like what I learned in the military, I'm going to have to start over. And all of a sudden, people just start trying a new thing that might not be something they think they they even want to do. They just feel like they have to do it. Or, you know, they start a company that they don't even know is going to be successful. It just seems like that's what everybody is doing. And some of them are successful and some of them aren't, which is the same anywhere. Um, But what I will say is, you know, especially people coming out, uh, you know, government and and doing things within the cyberspace, your skills absolutely transition to the private sector. You know, you don't necessarily have to stay within the intelligence community to continue to do targeting, to continue to find those exploitable pathways and help somebody's, you know, quality of life become better just because you've been able to make them a harder target. So I think that would be my quick uh, snippet of just telling people your skills absolutely do translate. If you do want to start a completely new path, that's absolutely awesome. You you should do that. But if you're coming out thinking that your skills don't translate because you didn't get the first job that you applied to on LinkedIn or you know the second job that you had an interview for, like keep pushing because there are jobs out there that absolutely fit and need the skill set that people coming from this industry have. That's awesome. Chris, do uh, you have anything to add on that coming from your space as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like Chris hit that pretty good, but I feel like there's there's usually, from what I've seen anyway, there's two um, there's two different attitudes coming out of the government. Uh, one is, you know, you feel like you're dependent on the government. Um, you've been ingrained so long; it's like this is all I know. Uh, you know, 
gosh, I got to go into the private sector. I got to beef up the resume. I've got to start paying for my own. Well, depending on who you go work for, but you're like, who's going to take care of my benefits and my insurance and things like that. And it can be overwhelming because like me, for example, I got out before retirement. So I was like kind of dependent on the government. You know, it was scarier in thought than it actually was in reality. Uh, It does all work out, especially if you get a job with a company who like 360 wants to take care of their people when they do. Um, And then on the other side of that coin, there's the guys who just straight up feel like, you know, it's it's into the road for them. Maybe they're retiring or whatever the case may be, but they don't want to transition into the private sector because they feel like they lose their identity and and who they are. And they, they miss that team environment or whatever the case may be. And I had a little bit of that as well. And what really, you know, drove me towards 360 was uh, there was a a large group of like-minded individuals already working there, come from a background similar to me. They were starting this new thing that was kind of exciting. Uh, it was like a a new uh, mission, if you will. You know, we don't know if it's going to succeed, if it's going to fail, you know, but we got to plan it and implement it. And so I think that's a big part of it. You know, go seeking out those jobs that have people already working there that maybe came from a similar background or they're doing something that gives you that new, that new drive, that new mission. It may not be military, but it still puts you back in that mindset. And I've definitely been very happy. That's wonderful. And uh, it's something that uh, I think is important to cover even just briefly, uh, because inevitably there's, there's somebody out there that is about to make that transition or has made that transition. And like you said, the first couple swings of the bat, haven't gone as planned, um, but just keep on swinging. Eventually, you're going to hit that fence like uh, both of you guys have. As we wrap up, um, as we always do here, I'll give you guys an opportunity for anybody who's trying to uh, learn more, whether it's about 360 privacy or learn more from you guys uh, on LinkedIn. Um, I'll give you guys an opportunity to provide where people can uh, reach out, connect with you guys, and uh, either link up on great business synergies or uh, mentorship type of stuff or whichever. Um, I'll give you guys the opportunity to uh, to share that info now. So if you go to uh, 360privacy.io, 360privacy.io, that's our website. Um, you can kind of glean some additional information about us, about the organization. You can also request a free demo. Also feel free to reach out to the three of us on our LinkedIn pages. Um, uh, that, that, that all not only goes for, you know, wanting to, to learn more about the, the organization and, and what we do, but, uh, all three of us being veterans that have, tr- you know, successfully transitioned into corporate, the, you know, the corporate environment, we, we all three love to coach and mentor, um, you, you know, younger folks coming in the industry, trying to break in, um, trying to understand the space. Uh, reach out. Let's have a conversation. See if there's something that we can help you with. Maybe it has nothing to do with executive protection or digital executive protection, but you just want uh, a sounding board or or a piece of advice. We're also open to that. Alternatively, we will be at um, you know both GSX and IPSB uh, later this year in conjunction with various other uh, conferences, etc. Wonderful guys. Well, hey, uh, I want to thank each of you for your time today. Uh, I know we went a little bit longer than we usually do, but the content was wonderful. And again, I appreciate you guys sharing your insights and experiences, especially in this digital landscape space. Um, Appreciate you all for joining me today. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for continuing to support and listen to interesting conversations on executive protection and security management. Until next time, guys, stay safe.